and welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is all about food systems change. Bayer Crop Sciences Head of Global Public Affairs, Science and Sustainability, Sarah Buttiger, gives a taste of how we can innovate for a more sustainable food system. Agco's Global Director of Sustainability, Louisa Parker-Smith, and Global Director of Agronomy, Darren Goebel, highlight the importance of collaboration. And FAIR's Executive Director, Maria Latini, explains how investor engagement is increasingly shaping the sustainable food conversation. Yes, a very warm welcome to you all this sunny July day, whether you are listening from your garden, from the beach or like me, still sitting at your virtual work desk. And a big thank you for tuning into this episode, which, as the introduction mentioned, um, is focusing on food systems change in light of the fact that the UN's pre-summit for the first ever food systems summit is kickstarting on Monday, 26th of July 2021. I'm Edie's senior reporter and honorary podcast secretary, Sarah George, and I'm joined in the virtual podcasting studio by content editor Matt Mace and potentially his dog slash Zoom meeting assistant, Wally. Yeah, I think Wally's a bit too tired to uh, to contribute to this today. He's uh, he's a bit like me, struggles with uh, with the heat, but I'm uh, I'm 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 here. I'll I'll, uh, I'll do my best to be as entertaining as him. Fantastic. And how how are you doing? I know you you missed the last episode. You're busy squirreling away on. Well, you said reports, but perhaps it was football and Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, no, um, I'm doing very well. Still squirreling away on squirreling away on the reports. Uh, we've still got two more left in our COP26 Prime series, looking at the key uh, principal themes for COP26. So I've been finishing off nature-based solutions, um, which you know does does kind of align with today's episode and then moving on to uh climate uh, mitigation and adaptation and resiliency as the uh the last one for that series so um it's been uh, a busy time not necessarily helped by this plethora of uh government announcements uh, including the, the food strategy as well so yeah and we can come on to that in in a minute so as Matt has said lots has been happening for ED in the past few weeks and there's lots coming up on the near horizon too um so it might be school holidays for the kids from next week and it might be recess for parliament um but it's definitely not for us um and while we've not got events in August per se we've got lots coming up in September which we can give away a little bit more about nearer the time but back to, to the here and the now, we're a few days out from the UN's pre-summit for the Food Systems Summit. Um, it's the first time that the UN is putting on this event. And in my honest opinion, it's not a moment too soon. Whenever we hear about disjointed progress on sustainability, um, particularly due to policy gaps that are allowing or even encouraging unsustainable business practices, food systems is one of those areas that always pops up. I'm presuming if you're listening in, you have a little bit of an idea of some of the environmental and social challenges facing this sector, um, but not to be all doom and gloom, but I thought I'd just set the scene with some quick facts and stats. So some of the challenges facing the sector include the fact that the global population is going to pass 9 billion by 2050. And at the same time, we need to solve hunger. At the moment, one in nine people globally is undernourished. 
does the fact that agriculture is the world's largest user of freshwater, accounting for 90% of consumption. There's the fact that, according to the IPCC, agriculture has driven around three quarters of all deforestation to date. There's another IPCC statistic that land use accounts for around 23% of our annual global man-made emissions, agriculture taking the biggest portion of that. Um, there's the fact that at least one third of the food that's produced globally every year is ending up as waste and that this waste generates about 8% of our annual emissions, making it a bigger emitter than aviation by quite a wide margin. Um, and then there's also the biodiversity and soil degradation problem. So just one quick statistic is that the world depends on soil, one layer thereof, for 95% of our fresh crops and animal feed. But at least one third of this soil is degraded and that proportion is increasing rapidly. So the aim of this episode isn't, as I said, to be doom and gloom, but to give a glimpse of a better future, exploring the innovations, collaborations, activism and policy changes that could help build the sustainable food systems of the future. In our first half of this episode, we're going to hear from two major players in the private sector to better understand how businesses can change the historical track record our first guest is Bayer Crop Sciences Head of Global Public Affairs, Science and Sustainability, Sarah Botiger. Sarah holds a PhD in Agricultural and Resource Economics and she joined the Bayer team around a year ago, having previously worked as a sustainability advisor at McKinsey & Co and before that the Syngenta Foundation for Sustainable Agriculture. So a really knowledgeable voice about this topic who I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to. Let's play that interview with Sarah in full. Hi, Sarah. It's a delight to have you on our podcast today. How are you? I'm good. Hi, the other Sarah. <laughs> nice yes. to be with you. This could get really confusing really quickly. <laughs> Whereabouts in the world are you calling in from today, Sarah? I'm calling in from California. Oh, nice. What's it like there at the moment? Is it is it warm? It's gorgeous. You know, I'm always a little embarrassed to say how good <laughs> there is. It's dependably cool and sunny. Fantastic. Well, here it's still, I think, a mix between heat wave and storms on, on and off. So I can't pretend not to be a little bit um, jealous, but we're, we're not here to do a global or, or long range weather forecast. Um, we're here to chat food systems. Um, so I wanted to start with a question that just came to me, really, in that I'm well aware of Bayer, but not so much about Bayer crop science. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what it does and how that interacts with the parent company, just to set the scene. Yeah. Um... Bayer Crop Science is one division among the three at Bayer, and the other two are the Pharmaceuticals Division and the Consumer Health Division. And we're all governed by a shared vision, which is to create a world with health for all and hunger for none. So we each work on separate products and solutions, but towards this common goal. And at uh, Bayer Crop Science, we're super focused on providing the tools that farmers all over the world need to meet the challenges of the future, which is what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> More food, feed and fiber for a growing population. We need to use we need to grow that on less land and using less resources. And that means we need to keep innovating. So so Bayer Crop Science is a tremendous leader in agricultural innovation. Our R&D team uh, spends over 2 billion euros a year, uh, which is uh, more than twice of our closest competitors. And we have more than 7,000 scientists in the company in our division. 
So it's a it's a tremendous innovator focused on uh, on landing uh, the best tools in farmers' fields. And I want to touch on some of those specific innovations and investment strategy and scaling strategy. But I think it's important to start with like the broader um, sustainability strategy and work as, as well, because as you mentioned, you, like like many companies, this company has that that vision that you mentioned that's shared across different departments. But big agricultural companies like Bayer have had to overcome past criticisms and controversies improving that they have you know science-based ambitious credible sustainability goals so i wanted to take a look at um what the sustainability approach looks like for bio crop science and whether that's evolved recently just purely as because you know the climate and biodiversity conversation has been changing so quickly in terms of everything from the science itself to public perceptions to to policy and as you mentioned investment yeah, and I think this is changing super fast, um, and it's a it's a really interesting shift. Uh, you know, we used to uh, years ago the the sustainability goals were sort of in a corporate corporate social responsibility side of the company, and now uh, because of all the changes that are happening, they're they're really being drawn straight into the long term growth strategy of com- of companies. So, and that's the same at Bayer, where where I think we're a, a leader in really integrating sustainability into the strategy. So, if you think about what's changing, uh, you know, clearly we are in a, a climate emergency. We we have to be innovating faster. We have to if we're going to actually figure out how to uh, how to how to meet the goals. And we always talk about these uh, average temperature goals, right? The, the Paris Agreement says, you know, we try to limit the temperature to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But the problem for us is that farmers don't 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 work in long-term average temperature changes, right? They work in uh, what's the daily weather and the increased risk of extreme weather. So that means for us, uh, part of our sustainability strategy is really innovating for what that looks like for a farmer. So we're always taking this farmer's lens into uh, things like climate change and biodiversity. Um, so I would say that uh, that's one piece, of course, that's changing is is the, the the bigger picture, how well we understand how fast things are changing. But there's a bunch of other things that are changing in the industry, in the ag and food industries. One is uh, that the, the digital revolution is mm-hmm. really finally hitting. You know, we've it's 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 hit different industries, uh, you know, at, at different times, and it's it's finally agriculture was a bit of a laggard in in adopting a lot of the digital uh, tools that are out there and really uh, getting them to a point where they're having value for farmers. But now we've got traceability through uh, value chains from farm to to fork and we've got you know a real revolution in remote sensing satellite imagery um, just lots more data-driven decisions by farmers Uh, but another piece that's changing is the policy and regulatory space uh, around the world just uh, huge changes in in the green deal in europe and in the biden administration and and in many many uh, countries Capital markets, investors are changing, uh, consumers are changing in what they're demanding. All sorts of things are kind of driving this uh, this fact that um, that while we we absolutely at Bear have a set of sustainability goals, uh, and I'll, I'll give you those in a minute. But I think the important point is that those are those aren't a, a bolt on. <laughs> 
to the company uh, and they are they're invested in in a in a really strategic way so our our three uh, big goals that we announced in 2019 um, one is around carbon uh, which is to reduce uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced in the field by 30 percent so many companies have a greenhouse gas commitment uh, of reducing uh, emissions that is in their operations but we've gone beyond that. We absolutely have that. Uh, but we've gone beyond that to say we actually want to produce products that help farmers be a part of the solution uh, and, and lower their own emissions. And then the second one is that we are uh, pledging to empower 100 million smallholder farmers, uh, which is a, a huge number. <laughs> and we are and incredibly committed again as a strategic priority. Uh, to making that happen. And the last uh, goal of ours in sustainability is around environmental impact. Again, a really critical topic for biodiversity. Um, and our goal uh, that we're committed to is reducing uh, crop protection impacts um, and environmental impacts in the field by 30%. And those are all by 2030 that we've committed to those. Great, I think that's a good overview, and yeah, that 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 need to embed while adapting and remaining fle flexible is something that I think a lot of companies will be dealing with. Definitely have heard it several times before. Um, I wanted to come back to the innovation specifically, which is where I know your passion um, lies. So I just wanted to ask you've mentioned a few of them there, and how some innovations are not only part of the low carbon transition or the transition to better biodiversity management but also the digital revolution as well. So I'd love to know what some of the innovations that you are working on that excite you the most um, and whether they are all techie um, or whether there are process innovations too, because we see so much about, as you say, sensors or seed planting robots and things like that. But we also hear about just simple ways of changing the processes too. Yeah, and I am sort of a tech geek, so I'll try not to do dive only into the tech side uh, but uh, you know I, I think one one good example is uh, in our carbon farming work uh, so uh, if we want farmers to be able to change how they farm to be able to plant cover crops or uh, try to figure out how to sequester carbon try to do low-till practices they have to be compensated for that. They have to understand the, the benefits and, and be, be paid for them. Um, that requires a lot of um, this sort of enabling, you know, how are we gonna say this farmer is uh, sequestering this carbon? You know, how do we develop a system on the field that can support carbon credit market uh, globally or could support something, you know, a, a company saying, uh, we want to source this many uh, hectares of regenerative ag products um, and uh, and this farmer qualifies for that that takes not only the digital technology to be able to actually sense and and map the practice changes but it also takes this partnership you know it's not one company that can decide that this is the right way to measure this it's not going to fly for a global carbon market or even a national carbon market so uh, so that kind of there's a both the technical side uh, but there's the process side of really working across uh, public and private sectors and working with policies to try to enable this this uh, shift which is just totally critical for us to be able to to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture there's a ton of other digital pieces um, we've 
integrated uh, artificial intelligence and predictive analytics into our plant breeding so that all of the decisions we make so we have the the uh, data on the genotype we have the data on what the plant traits are as it grows and then we have the data on what the field uh, what it, how it grows in the field and when you map all those together you can um, speed up your innovation which is a you know this this sense that you keep getting from me which is we have to do this faster than we're doing right now. We have a we have a huge urgency here in terms of sustainability. Uh, so th so those are a couple. Uh, we have um, work in uh, the microbial area. We have a really uh, amazing joint venture uh, called Join Bio uh, that's working to engineer a microbe that could be used with um, cereal crops like corn and wheat and rice that actually converts nitrogen from the air into a form. Uh, they can use to grow. So, so super cool. Uh, again, you know, I'm kind of diving into the, to the techie side of things. <laughs> um, the last one I'll give you is is um, built on a on a on a platform of uh, traditional plant breeding, a hybrid, as well as some of the the uh, more technical, more uh, uh, advanced breeding uh, ways that we have in terms of GM and uh, and gene editing, and it's a short corn which is actually a third shorter than your typical corn and uh and we, we just launched uh, the first uh, variety in, in mexico and it'll be launched in the in the u.s sort of mid-decade uh, but super cool in a number of traits first it withstands wind which is you know one of these more extreme weather events that we are starting to get um, because it's so much shorter you can also plant the plants much closer together so you use less land you can grow more on less land and it has uh you know water and, and nutrient um benefits also it's just a it's just a tremendously innovative uh um, it's a, it's a little bit like uh, I don't know if if your listeners know Norman Borlaug's uh, dwarf uh, varieties that he was famous for feeding the world with, but this is a bit of a Borlaugian corn <laughs> that we've invented. I think that's a good walkthrough, and I wanted to come back to you. You mentioned there on on not so much the short corn, but the other stuff. Um, you've covered how data is an enabler of a more sustainable food system, but without that tech, that it can be a barrier as well, that you just don't have the information to properly subsidise or track, um, and that that's, not, that's really important. But I wanted to touch on the other um, challenges to scaling these innovations and the other benefits of, of, of doing so, because presumably if there weren't challenges, um, our food systems would just be all nice and sustainable already. <laughs> Yeah, and I always I'd say that um, I think there are sort of three legs to the stool. Uh, one is the technology side or the innovation side, uh, but I think you need good policies which have to change. You know, we're 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 in we're innovating in the policy space, and whether we get it right or not, I think is a super important part. Uh, and then the third leg of the stool that I think we really need is is partnerships. So, so I think if you put all of those together and you do them well, you can actually overcome a lot of the barriers that are out there because you get the incentives to drive the financing and the funding in the right direction and you get the scale, you get the implementation. Um, in 2020, just this year, last year in January, we um, decided to get together uh, a bunch of stakeholders in uh, that work in banana. Uh, there's this um, 
there's something called Fusarium wilt TR4, which is this fungal disease, which is just completely threatening the future of the banana crop globally. Um, and of course, banana is a, is a huge, while we all like to eat it for breakfast in, in places where, where, where I live, uh, there's actually 400 million people in the world, uh, particularly in low-income countries that depend on, on the banana for their, for their livelihoods. Uh, and this is just a tremendous partnership that uh, goes across uh, public and private sector. It has companies, universities, NGOs, multilaterals. And it's about the genetics and the breeding, um, the uh, the chemical and biological methods of how you control the disease, training. Uh, it's just a great example of what we can do um, if we really get together. Fantastic. And a lot of ground covered there. And I think I'd, I'd like to wrap it up just by bringing it back to what inspired me to set up this episode in the first instance, which is that the UN Food System Summit pre-event um, is taking place this month. And we've talked a lot there, um, probably more about the tech side, the investment side, the innovation side, the private sector side than the national and international um, agreement side. So I'd love to get your views on what your hopes are for the outcome of, of that summit. Yeah, I, I, it's such an important, uh, uh, such an important set of issues to raise globally uh, to 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 really catalyze action in. Except that you know, there's a chance that we'll just sort of talk about it and then go back to our own business. That that's what worries me is that we're, is that we're not going to actually stand up there and commit. Uh, to different ways of working. So, so I put out a couple of challenges in my last uh, conversation in in the UN Food Systems uh, dialogues, and and one was just around figuring out, you know, could we all commit to a partnership that is outside of our comfort zone? You know, could we could we figure out, you know, who would we not normally partner with? But it makes sense to get that scale uh, and get that uh, those things done. I get that implementation. So that was the first challenge, and and the second one um, again goes goes back to Norman Borlaug, which is you know take it to the farmer. Like we can't we can't keep these conversations at this uh, you know high level um, without uh, we're not going to get to where we need to go unless we focus all of this kind of in the in the reality of on the farm and the solutions we're talking about need to be really farmer focused if we're going to transform uh, the food systems the way that we need to. So those are my two challenges I, I <laughs> that, that I personally am taking uh, and, and have uh, um, hoped that, that others uh, will challenge their own institutions and organizations to take. Thanks once again to Sarah. We will, of course, be keeping an eye on Bayer's work at the UN Summit and beyond. Um, so, yeah, I was apprehensive, to be honest, about, about getting the big companies on for this episode. But I thought that ultimately we do need to include these big companies that they're, they're not going anywhere. They have the innovation capacity. They have the staff. They have the supply chain and they ultimately need to deliver that just transition. Um, but as Sarah talked about there, there's also a need for them to increasingly have in-house expertise to properly engage and to be willing to be changed from within to, to some extent. I don't know if we're on the same page here, Matt, or if you have a, a different view. Yeah, I think um, I think the green community, and I'm, I'm badging quite a lot of people in that community, everything from in-house sustainability professionals to your kind of, your, your, campaigners who are a bit more um 
vocal and, and critical of the movement and quite rightly we need that we need that um it's not cynicism but it's it's a critical look at, at what businesses are up to you definitely need to hold them to account but as you said and you can you can take that that account of the fact that they're not going anywhere you can map that across all sectors um, i think of oil and gas as well <clears throat> um you know for now the fossil fuel giants aren't going anywhere and they're making big moves into the green um markets and they do have the capital to actually really transform sectors. Sure, there's there's some, I say some, there's a lot of questions about their motives. And that, that's probably the same with uh, with some of these companies um, like Bayer as well. But yeah, they are going to be key drivers of a transition, um, whether they drive it at the pace needed or whether it's kind of held up because they're, they're, they're not quite transitioning at, at speed that they can but um they they have the the human and financial resources to to actually really um drive this and i, I think a, a key if you look at any kind of sector disruption i i look at the uh always look back to the automakers you get a couple of disruptors in your teslas and then slowly and surely the incumbents start to to take notice as and when um consumer demand and policy starts to really clamp down on them so I'm sure we'll see that across the uh, the food sectors. Granted, that's much more it's much bigger and and much more more diverse in in the sense of the the products and the services that it provides. Mm. And obviously, this as you said, it's a big topic. We could be here all day. So hoping to give a good taste of it today, if you will pardon. Nice pun. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move on to our next guest, where we are, as Matt has alluded to, focusing on a slightly different part of the food system. So a system that's really big with lots of moving parts. Um, and that part is the machinery, the storage solutions and the software that farmers need to actually grow and harvest our food and get it into the downstream part of the value chain. So to the trucks, to the retailers and and to us. Um, so we've got two guests from Agro, a multinational company which provides all of these important things to discuss how collaboration between farmers, suppliers, tech providers, buyers and others is vital to creating a system shift. Um, so from Agco, we have Global Director of Sustainability, Louisa Parker-Smith, and Global Director of Agronomy, Darren Goebel. So without further ado, let's play that interview with those two. Hi, Louisa, and hi, Darren. It's a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast at the same time, despite the time zone difference. So how are we both today? Yeah, yeah. really good. Very good. Yeah, doing great. Fantastic. And I know it's the first time that we've had Agco on the podcast, so I think it'd be great to get into it to just learn a little bit about your respective roles and remits and how you guys work together, um, maybe starting with Louisa. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sarah. So um, my name is Louisa Parker-Smith and I'm the uh, head of sustainability at Agco Corporation. So it's a newly it's a newly created role. Effectively, we've uh, traditionally had sustainability driven within our brands and within our regions. And of course, now we're seeing such, you know, this is such a high area of interest for all of our stakeholders that it was felt appropriate to actually develop a new corporate function. So really excited to be driving this at Agco. And Darren, how about yourself? Hi, Sarah. Yeah, I'm Darren Goebel, and I'm leading our agronomy and farm solutions team. Uh, this is a team of experts uh, around the world. Uh, for the most part, we're agronomists, but we also have um, livestock expertise as well. And what we're really focused on is conducting agronomic research trials in the field to really focus on challenges farmers are being faced with. 
And what we do with that information is feed that back into our engineering departments, our product management departments, and really let them tackle those problems, you know, from a technical perspective, provide that technology and that machine uh, information back to back to back to farmers. And uh, recently we've been doing a lot of work around sequestration of carbon around cover crops and other uh, farming practices that we can employ uh, in order to solve those issues. Great. And I'd love to come back onto that um, in a moment because that's just been such a hot topic these past few months. I say few months, but um, I'd say for a couple of years now and only gaining um, attention. So it's great to meet you both and to have you both on the podcast and to learn about all the different ways in which the food sector can become more sustainable. And obviously, this is a really complex and multifaceted issue. But um, as a company that manufactures machinery and solutions for um, for the sector, I feel like one of the most obvious things you can do is to decarbonize products and operations and sell products that help farmers increase efficiency, so energy efficiency and less waste and all the rest of it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the work that's been going on in terms of, of those areas. I feel like, Louisa, this might sit with yourself. Sure. I mean, you know, you, you've kind of got kind of hit that right on the nail there that Agco as both a manufacturer uh, all, but, but of agricultural equipment, we really straddle two sectors. So of course, we we manufacture farm machinery and then we support farmers to uh, provide food to global population, a growing population. Um, so both manufacturing and agriculture do contribute significantly to global emissions. And I think that's kind of an important an important point. So we we have an important role to play when we're looking at uh, some of the challenges that we're facing right now. So two of our four sustainability pillars actually focus on this topic. How can we decarbonize our own operations and products and how can we support farmers to be part of the solution because agriculture is now seen as a, as a potential carbon sink as well. So that's that's kind of really key for us. I'd say specific to our operations, there are two specific goals that we're driving within the business now, which we recently announced. The first one is to reduce our own emissions across our manufacturing footprint by 20 percent by 2026. So a relatively short timeline for that. And also to increase our renewables, uh, our use of renewable energy again by 2026. So they're two areas we want to focus on. And we've made a lot of uh, progress over the last 12 months. In 2020, so last year, we were actually, um, uh, it was announced that Agco was uh, an advanced fourth industrial revolution lighthouse. And that's a real mouthful. But this is basically an exclusive club of 44 manufacturing companies that have been identified as leading a state of the art and using intelligent manufacturing. And of course, once you bring um, these type of um, intelligent manufacturing processes, you also significantly reduce your environmental and energy impact as well. So I think that's really key. Darren, I don't know if you had anything to add on this point. If not, I'll come to you for for the next one. Well, yeah, I mean, um, if you look at if you look at the the issues and and the focus that we have as a manufacturer, if we can manufacture equipment and technology and solutions that help farmers to be effective in carbon sequestration, um, it's a it's a real win. Uh, it's a real win for us, and it's a real win for farmers. And um, so. I guess one thing I'd like to um, mention here, you know, you got to understand the science a little bit um, before we can talk about the solutions. And um, really, carbon sequestration is all about 
putting more plant material into the soil than what gets taken out. And so what we're doing at AGCO is we're continuing to develop systems that, uh, you know, affect that, affect that system in a positive way. You know, more no-till, more data, data information to the farmer to understand is, you know, is my organic matter level going up or is my organic matter level going down? Because if you think about organic matter, organic matter is that plant residue and, um, that's something that's super beneficial to the farmer from um, a yield perspective, as well as um, carbon sequestration. 58% of organic matter is soil organic carbon. And uh, that organic matter is what holds moisture and that organic matter is what holds nutrients. And so it's, it's a super important thing. And farmers want to do that. Farmers want to put more organic matter into their soil. But they need they need help to do to get that done because there's you know other challenges in that area. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's not just a case of providing the solution and that's it. They need other things. And you've mentioned their um, data, but I'm sure there's some qualitative stuff going on as as well. And I've been reading up about um, things like the company's online farmer community initiative. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about this ongoing engagement and education, especially in this context of, of COVID. So I work with a lot of supply chain professionals who have had to you know, really cut back on their farm visits, really. Yeah, that's that's been a real challenge. You know, before COVID, we were conducting quite a few field events with farmers in the field, showing them, you know, really what we're learning through through strip trial, through research. And we had to pretty much cut that out. Um, what we've what we've tried to do is shift a lot towards videos, um, and we've shifted shifted more towards uh, you know things on YouTube, on Vimeo. Um, more more related to podcasts to blog articles um and social media and uh you know it's it seems like it's been fairly effective and and actually we might be reaching a larger audience than we were just by doing a field event with 50 to 100 farmers you know in a small geography so there's probably pluses and minuses uh to the whole covid thing yeah i i agree with that and i i think we've seen this uh this huge transition towards digital which just opens up as, as Darren said the opportunity to engage with with more customers more frequently with more people across the business so in addition to the work that Darren and the global agronomy team do with sort of boots on the ground and, and some of the videos and so on we do also run um, a regular uh, online uh, panel with farmers just to receive sort of insights on the challenges and some of the opportunities that they see and taking it even one step further, we now have a quarterly panel directly with our global leadership team. So that effectively those people taking the decision at the top are hearing exactly what the farmers have to say. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting you know, when you look at what's top of mind for the farmer. Of course, they are very much, especially in Europe, thinking about the impact of the Green New Deal, the how are they going to actually uh, rise to the challenge of reducing, you know, fertilizer use. How are they going to cut their energy consumption? But I think what really came across for me with some of the uh, sessions was the moral obligation and, and sense of responsibility that farmers have to preserve the soil for future generations and very much seeing themselves as, as stewards of the land. Um, from a sort of challenges perspective, I would say it tends to be more around how how will they adapt to very quickly developing new business models 
um, which requires significant change within their operation whilst also remaining profitable. And there's definitely some kind of concern there uh, and also having a voice and a seat at the table. So I think they're all kind of really key things. Um, but the last thing I'd say on that, we, we've, we've very much taken the, the pharma first approach incredibly seriously at ADCO now and our new corporate strategy. Um, and our purpose is pharma focused solutions to sustainably feed our world was announced in January uh, this year. And alongside that, now we've actually restructured a little bit the organization, as Darren really said in, in his introduction, to um, really double down on taking the customer insight and feeding that into our product management group, product development group, and also feeding into our product quality team as well. So it's not just sort of, you know, walking the yeah talking the talk it's walking the talk as well because you have to have the mechanisms to make that work within the business yeah and i think louisa you bring up a good point um about about keeping keeping farmers profitable and maintaining yield um you know as farmers have to um uh, change their practices you know less tillage adding cover crops it brings in an element of uncertainty and it also brings in an element of uh, some real challenges from a just cropping systems perspective and the one thing that we want to avoid is any loss of crop yield and not so much uh, from the standpoint of production volumes but if we lose crop yield we put less residue into the system and now all of a sudden uh, we're not um, adding from a carbon sequestration sequestration perspective at all and so we have to maintain the yields and, and keep farmers profitable, even as they change practices. I wanted to come on to that, actually, because as you mentioned there, some of the practice changes that are underway are a result of new policies, like you mentioned, the Green New Deal in the, in the EU and in the UK. There's a new agriculture bill um, after we left the EU's common agricultural um, policy. So it's clear that there is a role of businesses to step in here and support where that might not be clear. But obviously, food systems are systems. Um, they're all connected and farmers are parts of communities and affected um, by trade bodies and by policy as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, about your engagement here. Yeah, I, I mean, I we do talk a lot about farmers. I mean, that is our, that's our main focus. And, um, and we really want to work with our, our customers to help build sustainable food systems for the future. Um, you know, we, we, we all know that sort of big headline statistic around the, the number of billions of people we have to feed by 2050, um, close to 10 billion people. But just to put it into context, that's 70 percent more food production than what we're, we're, we're currently producing now to keep pace. So, you know, this this sustainable crop production intensification is is really what we're driving to. And often when you're faced with these new global challenges, it's it's about kind of what's new, what can we do that's that's new and different and, and what's next. But the good thing in this instance is that the technology is very much here already. It's it's precision ag and, and smart farming. So we have the solutions, the the challenges to, you know, increase the adoption rates uh, with, with farmers. But um yeah, I mean, so yeah, our, our focus is very much on 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 the customer, but we we are actively involved in shaping policy. Um, we have leadership on you know in 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 key roles within a number of the key uh, trade bodies in Europe and North America. So we have a board membership on SEMA, which is the European um, Association for Ag Manufacturing Companies. 
equally in, in North America. We also have a, a board member on the National Association of Manufacturers. And Eric Hansotia, our new CEO as of January this year, is also on the board of the US Chamber of Commerce. So we primarily leverage our, our role in uh, trade bodies um, to advance topics around climate change, uh, urbanization on rural labor. The Green New Deal, of course, is probably dominating the agenda right now. Um, so they're the sort of channels that we would primarily use. But again, you know, it's really about taking insights from the field to the table of some of these big discussions that are happening at, at the policy level. Yeah, and I think that, that you bring up a good point, uh, taking taking things from the field to the table. You know, we have we have a farm in Switzerland where we actually conduct research on new solutions around weed management, uh, new solutions um, around cover crops and cropping systems, and um, that's one key way that we as Agco, you know, are getting this this research done. Another way, and this is this is uh, happening in the UK. We have what's called Ambassador Future Farmers, and these Ambassador Future Farmers are actually our partners, and we're sitting down and meeting with them and really trying to understand the challenges that they're being faced with, and then conducting on-farm research with them to help them to help them solve that. Great. Well, I'll I'll do a quick Google of that, and I'll keep an eye out for for news from that. Um, I could uh, honestly talk about this all day, but I'm running out of time. So I wanted to finish on a much quicker question, um, which is that this episode is obviously coinciding with the UN Food Systems Summit in July. Um, so I'd love to know what's top of your wish list for the things that you'd love to see coming out of the summit. You've talked there about the need for private sector innovation to be scaled up um, with support else, elsewhere. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to reiterate that or, or say something different for this, this closing question. I'll probably start with Louise. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see um, the UN Food Systems Summit um, and an emphasis on, on this particular topic. You know, the SDGs are so broad. Sometimes you do need to take a deep dive to really kind of get into the nitty gritty. So, you know, we'll be watching with interest and we welcome the focus. I, I guess there are two tracks that are particularly interesting to us. There's uh, one particular particularly focused on boosting nature positive production, which the soil health theme very much sits squarely there. And then uh, one about building resilience. You know, I think that's so important right now. We know that ag is highly exposed to climate change. We know that our farmers have just been through an incredible tough, you know, as we all have, but especially at the farm level through a tough 18 months, really trying to, you know, keep food supply chains moving and, and keep people fed throughout COVID. Um, so I would say that there's not a very specific policy outcome that we're looking for here, but we want to see um, more emphasis on strong farmer engagement. I think it's really important that they have a voice, um, you know, especially as policymakers are, are starting to think about um, the levers that need to be put in place and the incentives that need to be put in place to drive this type of change. Absolutely, the, a really important role for the private sector, especially industry, as we're often looked to to you know develop new initiatives, develop the products, finance them, and, and operate these solutions. So I, I think we would we would very much like to stay involved, um, and then let's recognise that there are already fantastic technologies out there, and so how can we really try and scale these technologies up, and also support farmers with the kind of knowledge. Uh, um, and insights that you know Darren and his team are, are taking to the field so that they realize the benefits and can actually uh, adopt these practices in their own operations. Darren I see you nodding there especially during that part about making sure that farmers get a voice in all of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, farmers, uh, farmers, they're the boots in, on the ground. And uh, there's been more than one time that um, I've been the student at the at the foot of the farmer and uh, they're doing some really innovative things. And we can learn a lot from uh, those leaders out there that have already been working in this space for quite some time. Thanks once again to both of our guests from AGCO. We're going to take a short break now before turning our focus to the role that investor engagement can play in driving positive change from food firms. Join Matt and I after the jingle for an exclusive interview with FAIR's Executive Director, Maria Latini. Hello and welcome back to part two of this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, all about making food systems more sustainable. Um, Not to toot our own horn here, Matt, but I think once again, we've somehow got fantastic timing on this episode. So we all knew about the the UN event, but specifically, as you mentioned earlier, here in the UK, we've also had the National Food Strategy um, just a few days ago. Um, I don't want to go on about it because I, I did the initial coverage, but Matt, I don't know if you've had a chance to look as well. Um, yeah, very fleetingly amongst the um, amongst the the well, it was it was like a conveyor belt, wasn't it, of just uh, just government announcements from that, um, and obviously the the transport decarbonisation plan was probably the the big one as well. Um, but I think it's um, probably one of the the first clear cut looks of a policy we've seen that's actually kind of, you know, set up some new post Brexit standards. I mean, agriculture was so intrinsically tied to the European Commission when we we're in the EU. The uh, the the CAP, for example, was was such a big driver um, for standards, practices and, and income for farm. It's, it's probably one of the biggest overhauls we've seen. Um, I'm not necessarily sure how how well it's going to tie into um what we need in terms of the the environment and build stuff i mean you you worked on that uh that piece so you probably know more than i do so i'd be interested to just get your thoughts as to whether it's more of a uh more of a labor-based um strategy or or an environmental one i think it honestly really pairs the two and as well as being on environmental and labor so they talk as you say about the need for better payment systems that reward farmers for protecting nature and more clarity on when that's coming in and how it's going to be done. The Agriculture Bill did say that, but ultimately farmers have just expressed to Henry Dimbleby and the others um, who put together that strategy, which I should mention, it's not a policy piece in and of itself. It's it's a review, um, essentially. So, yeah, there's just a, a good pairing of that as well and then a big look at what some people have called one planet health as well so the links between human health and well-being financial well-being um, and as you say the environmental side of things and when you say that yeah this is a big update to policy and lots of clear-cut recommendation um, apparently there hasn't been a major review of the UK's food system for 75 plus years so that's multiple um, generations and I yeah the, the scale of change and the pace of change that will have happened then is just unthinkable across all of all of those areas that we we touched on so lots to look forward to question is obviously what will get picked up and and how 
Um, so that that remains to be seen. Mm. Um, but I do want to, for our third and final interview here, take a look back in in a in a kind of way rather than forward. Um, and mention that essentially, if you've been looking at sustainability news in the past few months, you'll have been really hard pushed to have missed all of these investor resolutions on climate issues, um, mainly directed at financial firms and big corporate emitters. So your energy majors predominantly. Um, to name but a few of these votes, there were two climate activists actually added to the board at ExxonMobil. Uh, Chevron was compelled to update its strategy in line with Paris Agreement and HSBC finally formally agreed to phase out coal financing. Um, but also over the past few months and yeah, especially past year with, with the COVID issues as well, investors have been increasingly engaging with the businesses in their portfolio that sit within the food system, um, looking at issues that we've mentioned. So animal welfare, human health and emissions and encouraging the shift towards alternative proteins that can contribute um, to the solutions to all of those issues. So that's where we're going to be focusing for this second half of the podcast. Um, to give an overview of why and how this is happening, I dialed Maria Latini, who is the Executive Director at FAIR. We work with FAIR quite a lot here at ED, um, but if anyone listening is unfamiliar, it's a non-profit global network of investors addressing ESG issues within the protein sector, set up by Jeremy Collar of, of course, Collar Capital. Um, it's now grown to be the world's fastest growing ESG network. So here in that recording, Maria outlines the trends in this space and what's pushing investors to get increasingly involved. Um, hope you enjoy. Hi, Maria. It's a delight to have you on our podcast today. How are you? Really well, Sarah. Really delighted to be here. No, thank you. Thank you for taking the time from, I assume, your home. Home, same office, same house, eager to be able to, to take some holiday soon. So hopefully, yeah, in the next couple of weeks. Well, I'm sure that that will be a lot of people listening right now um, <laughs> as as well. Um, so I guess for today, we'd like to start with we at ED have been working with FAIR for several years. Um, they appeared at a recent investor conference. We get all of their press releases and reports. Um, but I don't think I've spoken to you personally directly. Um, and I'm sure that people listening would love to know about what it means to be the executive director at FAIR. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your role in Remit. Um, and I understand that you joined FAIR after being at the UNPRI as well. So how that informs some of your work as well would be great to hear about. Yeah, so I've been at FAIR now for, for almost five years. Um, and, you know, FAIR has been around for just five years. So we're a relatively new um, institutional investor network. Um, so the joining five years ago from the PRI, as you rightly point out, um, the idea was really to bring together an institutional investor network. So that was essentially my my main responsibility to really raise awareness of the risks and opportunities in um, intensive animal agriculture and to bring together a network of investors. And really, that plays very nicely into my experience with, with the PRI, right? So at the PRI, again, another global institutional investor network. Um, so at FAIR, we really wanted to play off the successes of a network like the PRI. So at the PRI, you have, you know, 
engagements that really focus on, on steward asset stewardship within the investor community and produce research that really sort of raise awareness about how you can incorporate and integrate ESG issues. Um, and when our founder, Jeremy Collar, really saw the successes of FAIR, they, of, of the PRI, he thought that that sort of that foundation would really help us as we as we sought to bring investors into the fold. So that was my that was essentially my remit. Um, five mm -hmm. years ago, when I joined, there was a handful of investors um, I had which were already part of the network, about 800 billion in AUM. And I really uh, wanted to build out the team, focus on sort of building out our research capabilities and start extending and focusing uh, even more on some of our flagship issues like antimicrobial resistance and diversifying protein supply chains, which were really centered on the collaborative investor engagement side. Fantastic. And obviously it is obviously more than a handful of investors now. It's an absolutely major piece of of work and probably what I see the most is we get a lot of releases about rankings so looking at businesses in terms of some of the issues that that you covered um, as well as climate risk and more recently COVID risk um, as well so I wanted to ask about what exactly the role of investors is in driving change for a sustainable food system so I know that obviously those rankings are part of it they help investors make informed decisions and engage with the the holdings that they already have um, but increasingly in the news, we're seeing more about investing in, for example, plant-based innovations and disruptions, um, shareholder motions on climate and, and related issues. So I wanted to get your view on what exactly the role of investors is in food systems change and whether that is, I'm assuming it's probably multifaceted. <laughs> it's a little bit of all that, I think, Sarah. So, I mean, as you rightly point out, um, you know, investors need to play a role in each one of those in each one of those pillars. Um, and we try to help facilitate that. I mean, you know, so you're right in saying that FAIR produces benchmarks and tools and data. And I think that's absolutely essential for investors to be able to assess risk um, in in their portfolios. Um, but it's also important to have them really understand market trends. And that's been increasingly um, interesting when we think about food systems, right? So, you know, not only had we had we had all of these risk areas start to bubble up, whether it be deforestation or waste management, antimicrobial resistance, everything that says, hey, these, this system needs more um, intervention from an institutional investor community. But as we started talking about the risk, it was really clear that there was some really disruptive, innovative technologies that were that were also emerging. And of course, investors' responsibilities don't just extend to managing that that risk with their with their toolbox, but also identifying opportunities, being ahead of the curve, seeing market trends, and also helping to sort of differentiate uh, those companies. The leaders and laggards, um, who's thinking progressively, strategically. And I think that's where sustainable protein has really filled that gap. Um, and so a transition in the food system really is coming full circle now because we're not we're having investors and the capital markets not only address some of the big material risks, but also looking to, to help shift and transition this market um, into a, a, a more sustainable food system that will be active, actively uh, providing nutritious and equitable food for for a growing population, which is, you know, obviously essential. Mm, and and that's why you, you're here, and that's what the summit's about. Um, but I wanted to come on to something you mentioned there. You mentioned risk areas bubbling up, and I feel like this is a theme beyond 
food. So we've had reports from the TCC here in the UK recently, essentially saying that climate risk is materialising faster and harder than we than we expected. But obviously, COVID-19 has brought with it new risks and new trends in the consumer market as well yes. in terms of what foods people want, how much they buy, how they buy it and things like that. Um, and we've looked at some of the benchmarks from FAIR, but I'd love to hear from yourself how you think the conversation about sustainable food has changed within that investment community um, over the past, I guess, 15 months or so due to COVID-19. Yeah, I think, I mean, what COVID did was really put um, all of the risks into sort of a, a spotlight. It was quite frankly a perfect storm, right? So where I think we weren't so familiar with with zoonotic disease, um, COVID nineteen obviously being being one of being an epidemic that you know we think came from from animals, um, and you know intensive animal agriculture puts a lot of animals in a very close confined space with you know not fantastic ventilation and and a lot of waste is being produced and it's really a perfect place and a breeding ground for for viruses and disease so you know when people came to understand um, how how we were sort of presented with this pandemic I think people started thinking about oh my gosh you know our food system is at risk coupled with seeing basically food supply chains breaking down completely and coming to a complete halt in places like the US and frankly around the world because processing lines weren't adequately adequately actually addressing the spread of the virus right so in the US you had you know grocery stores that had meat sections completely bare with the exception of the plant-based meats that were still in the section next to you know where your steaks and and sausages used to be you had fast food chains who had to actually begin to alter their menus over the course of a couple of weeks because they just couldn't be offering you know their their flagship burger because there was not that supply. So I think that really helped to highlight that, you know, our our food system is consolidated. It's in the hands of a few large corporations that when something happens, actually we run into to periods of potential food insecurity. And I think that's been a big issue for, for investors thinking then about living through the pandemic and actually thinking how this translates into real material financial risk in their investment portfolios. And then, you know, out of sort of the light in, in the end of the tunnel was saying, well, you know, what hasn't been so affected uh, by food system supply chain disruptions has been the plant-based side. And there's many opportunities and advantages for thinking about alternatives to the intensively produced meat, fish, and dairy that's currently the majority of our, our food system today. Hmm. I wanted to come on to that opportunity note because obviously the pandemic, a lot of the conversation has been on risk. But when we think about the green recovery, there is always that look at opportunity, um, both, as you say, in terms of alternatives and innovation, but presumably in changing what's what's there already and just making it more holistically sustainable as well, because that doesn't sound like it's good socially either, that, that model. Right, exactly. And I mean, it puts a lot of lower income economies and countries at risk you know, we knew what happened through um, through COVID and on the processing lines, you know, many of the workers there, 
felt like they couldn't call in sick, right, or that they would potentially lose their job. So, uh, you know, these are real social issues that we have to consider. And many of the communities depend on on those processing lines and, or on, you know, intensive farms in developing markets. So I think you're right in saying this, you know, this needs a holistic approach. It needs a one health approach. Um, we need to look at how we're producing food and its impacts on human health, its impacts on animal health, and its impacts on the environment. Um, and, you know, there's really no other way because we know that, you know, over 50% of GDP is moderately dependent on nature. And, you know, we know that the world's ecosystems are in decline. We know that, you know, we have mass species extinction and we know that food and how we produce food is actually a big part of that, you know? So how are we moving species away from their natural habitats? How much of the world are we deforesting in order to produce meat and soy? Um, all that has obviously a, an ecosystem impact, but it has knock on effects on things like climate change. I mean, look what's happening in the Pacific Northwest this week, right? It's a once in a 10,000 year event um, with temperatures in 50 close to 50 degrees celsius in mm. areas of the world that in june you know are 15 20 degrees um and this is you know and subsequently we're going to get fires and you know and and droughts will continue and so we're actually seeing this huge climate change risk play out in real time and i think you're seeing investors wanting to completely understand how to begin to think about this risk and to move away from those those companies in their portfolio that are not thinking about how to build back a better future um, and into, in some cases, technologies that will help shift us to a low carbon economy. Mm. And and you've mentioned there this need for a holistic approach, this need for a One Health approach. And because this is being recorded to mark the pre-summit for the UN Food Systems Summit, um, I was hoping to, just to conclude, get you to condense that into a sort of wish list. So what you would <laughs> like to see included in the outcome, which obviously won't apply to investors directly, um, but nations might agree internationally on, on new mandates, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, there's a lot to do in the agriculture sector and, and, you know, it's historically been a, you know, a hard to transition, hard to decarbonize sector, as we mentioned, because many, many economies are really dependent and it's closely interlinked with lo local livelihoods. And, you know, previously, I think we've seen a real protectionist approach from uh, you know, and and understandably so. It's complicated, and as we mentioned, there's livelihoods involved. But I think w this is a real moment where we need to come together and understand how we can begin to transition the food system. So, you know, what does the future of agriculture and animal agriculture look like in a low carbon environment? And we know because there's such a huge percentage of emissions. And again, we're talking about over 30% of global GHG emissions that can be attributed to agriculture and animal agriculture. So that's more than many of the sectors that we're already seeing countries engage on. We're up there with energy, we're certainly more than transport. So what I think we need to see is, you know, some real roadmaps being thought out about how we can incorporate nationally determined contributions um, for this year in each one of the uh, each one of the countries at COP, what that means in terms of agriculture reduce it's absolutely essential to meet net zero targets. So there needs to be some meaningful discussion about what areas uh, we're going to be looking at. I think we want to see more discussion about subsidies. 
Mm-hmm. How can we begin to um, sort of transform how we think about subsidies in order to protect farmers from what is inevitable in the in a transition to low carbon economy, um, incentivize them to move towards more low carbon practices, um, mitigation and adaptation, as well as thinking about perhaps transitioning um, entire economies and, and and sectors into a more plant based, plant focused diet. Um, you know, we're currently using most of the world's commodities. Um, right now, only to go into feeding animals. That's very inefficient. Um, and and we know that commodity markets are, are volatile um, and we can help support feeding a growing population by focusing in on what each country can do best, um, not necessarily intensifying these systems um, and looking at supporting the livelihoods there by looking towards the future and what you know what's coming at us and what we can't avoid. So I, I, I looked for there to be some tough discussions around policy, around subsidies, around potential taxes, um, and how we can support a just transition to support developing countries. Yes, thank you, Maria, once again, for your time and your insight on this topic, which I'm sure is going to be front of mind for so many of us listening. Um, Maria was our last guest, so if you'll pardon the pun, I hope we've brought you lots of food for thought over the past hour or so. Um, A brief reminder of why we're doing this episode in the first place is that the UN Pre-Food System Summit starts this coming Monday, 26th of July, um, running for three days. And that's ahead of the actual summit in October, by which point we'll hopefully also be looking at the 15th Biodiversity COP and definitely be in the final throes of prep for COP26 in Glasgow. Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but for me, it's all creeping up very, very fast. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's it's been like on the horizon for so long, um, and and certainly COP26, especially, and and the CBD COP15 because they got moved back from last year as well. It feels like we've been waiting a an age for them to come around, and I suppose in a way we have, but um, <clears throat> all of a sudden. It, uh, it reminds me of uh, when I did my dissertation. It was so far away and the <laughs> deadline was always there. And then all of a sudden. Um, and then it's next week, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, oh, OK, I've got still got to do X, Y, Z. And I, I think, you know, the, the government's approach has been pretty similar. They've left it pretty late for some of these strate- uh, strategies. Certainly, we're still waiting the actual net zero strategy. And um, I think there'll be uh, someone will be waking up and be like, oh, OK, yeah, dissertation deadline tomorrow. Let's run the strategy out without too much of a a um a proofread but it's um you know it's also a great time um for people working in this space i think this is the biggest kind of wave of momentum in the corporate sustainability space since the formation and, and subsequent ratification of the paris agreement we've just spoken to a organization that represents a coalition of investors and i think the investor movement is is yeah the biggest thing in this space since the uh since the paris agreement the paris agreement created this global agreement and uh, and a destination um you know investors are showing this is where the money's moving we were starting to see what is a risk adverse sector move towards climate action um in around probably kind of early 2018 was the first kind of the first early movers and then i think um i don't want to say the silver linings of the coronavirus pandemic because it it was it's you know it's so bad that there isn't one but it has made some 
uh, financial institutions wake up and realise that <clears throat> this economy is exposed to so many risks, some that are, I, I say unforeseen, but I remember reading um, World Health Organisation um, report saying that, you know, uh, pandemics and, and zoolog zoological diseases are, you know, one of the highest threats to the economy and no one really acted to it. Similar things are being said about the climate crisis, and I think it's getting a bit more um, respect uh, the, the warnings in in that sense to than perhaps that. So um, we are yeah at a time where all the ducks are lining up in a row so to speak. But you know as all of this noise happens around COP26 and around CBD COP15, uh, it, it creates even more issues. So many businesses push to to be net zero. Um, the the investor community lines up. It what can get lost amongst all of this action is what is required what what is required to transform our systems whether that be food whether that be transport whether that be uh industry into something fit for the future and you know greenwash is is rearing its head again you know what what constitutes as esg for investors what constitutes as net zero for business what constitutes um as ambitious enough for cop 26 you know for every every good thing the government's done in terms of setting net zero strategies um, and um, updating bits of policy and legislative frameworks, I feel like there's always more questions that need answering than are, than are answered. And that's probably the case with every bit of news that comes into the news desk at the moment, which makes our jobs harder. So it's, it's, a, it's a great time. There's so much noise around it, but it's, uh, it does open up some challenges. And I think collaboratively, uh, a lot of work has to go into to setting standards and definitions for sure i'd love to have one of these episodes where we could just neatly wrap up the answers but i've i'm learning to live with the fact that it is just a prompt for more questions more discussions um and more thoughts so i hope you enjoyed but for now we're just about out of time for this episode um not just because we've had all three of our our, our guest businesses um but because matt and i are probably slowly melting in the heat and need to go back in the freezer for a little bit um, so for today's episode, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>